Turning to our scripture reading this morning, it comes from the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 43 to 54. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. You remember the background. Jesus has just spent two days teaching in a Samaritan town as he was journeying from Judea to Galilee. We pick up the narrative in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, my name is David Kim. I'm also one of the pastoral staffs in Renewal Mainline, and I have the privilege today to worship with you and also preach to you this morning on this chapter in John. About 2,000 years ago, there was a man uh, who served under Herod Antipas. Being a royal official meant a lot. It meant he was pretty well off, and there weren't many things to worry about, Usually, if that was the case, only that wasn't the case for this man. He was in great distress because despite all the good things that are happening in life, despite all the things that uh, can actually give him a lot of stability, a lot of joy, a lot of peace, he actually was not in peace because his son was greatly ill. He tried everything he can, probably, to get his son recovered. He probably used all his money, uh, possibly, to get the best physician in town, or probably tried other remedies that might have said to be worked, to, to work for any kind of stuff, only it didn't. Um, the father just grew more and more weary as he found that there might be no recovery to expect. He had to prepare to say goodbye to his son because his son was dying. And then one day he actually hears about this man. He hears about this Jewish prophet who's getting all kinds of attention, famous for miraculous works, not only his great teachings, provocative and amazing teachings, but his miraculous works. He hears about that. He hears about people talking about that, seeing that, the amazingness of it. And he hears that, that this man could heal people. And he heard that this prophet was staying in Galilee. So he thought maybe this was his last chance. 
maybe this is where he needs uh, to get everything and just kneel down to him. So he packs everything, he, his long journey, uh, and he tells the son that he will bring back the healer. That was my take when I was reading this passage. But this is the man that we meet uh, in today's passage who comes to meet Jesus Christ. So probably the words cannot easily express, describe such desperation that he's going through. Um, he probably walked about 17 miles from him, his home to Galilee. And just imagine that walk, just desperation, and that glimpse of hope. Maybe this may work. So we've been going over the Gospel of John and to see various cases of Jesus' encounter with various people. And we've seen that many encounters with Jesus actually look very different in every case. Uh, some do not expect to see Jesus. Some do not expect to meet him uh, like Simon. And all of a sudden, he's given a new identity. And all of a sudden, his world is flipped upside down. Uh, some approach Jesus uh, with genuine curiosity like Nicodemus and actually finds his worldview flipped upside down. The woman at the well, uh, she is met with a surprising warmth as Jesus offers living water that quenches eternal thirst that she always had. And then there is this encounter like today. An encounter that is easily identified with uh, desperation, or hopelessness, just turmoil. This man is deeply troubled, in need of a healer. And when he meets Jesus and he, when he asks for healing, Jesus' response can be a, a bit of a surprise to us, maybe a shock to us. At first glance, it seems like Jesus rebukes the man all of a sudden. To us, it's not only random, but just shocking. Why? What's going on? And then and then we see a closer, or take a closer look at this, and we could actually see how Jesus is teaching us the answer to this question. What is a genuine faith? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Jesus does three things in this encounter with the royal official, and that's going to be our outline today. First, he gives an assessment of the man's heart. And the second, he heals the heart. And the third, he provides the ultimate healing. So first, he gives the assessment of the heart. Second, he heals the heart. Third, he heals ultimately. We'll take a look at what they entail. So first, uh, Jesus gives an assessment. So it's an odd response from Jesus when he says to the royal official, verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So what is he talking about? Why is he rebuking him? What, is, what did he do wrong here? When you look at the original language, when Jesus says, unless you see signs, that word you is actually a plural form in Greek. What that means is, when, we could translate it this way too. Unless you people see signs and wonder. So what that reveals is that when royal official is meeting Jesus, and when he's starting to beg him to come to his home, he's now turning to somewhere else and speaking to random people. It's actually, we find out that it's surrounded by people. Uh, it's a big crowd of people that, we're, that, that are actually witnessing this whole encounter. And to those people, he's turning and saying, unless you see signs and wonders, you do not believe. 
Let's go back several verses. Let's start at verse 43 to see the background of what's going on today. Up until verse 42, we saw a massive conversion uh, by the Samaritans. The whole town came to meet him and learned and heard his word, and they believed in him. And then he left to Galilee. Verse 44, the author remembers Jesus' teaching about how he says he's not going to be welcomed in, in his hometown. And so verse 45 comes as a surprise to the readers when we find uh, that they're welcomed, actually. And then we're quickly told that it's actually because the people have seen all that Jesus has done previously. Verse 46, Jesus is now back, in, back to Cana in Galilee. This is the, providing actual, the actual background of why people are so thrilled to see Jesus. Because Cana, what happened there? That's where uh, Jesus became pretty big, where he actually did that miracle, water into wine. That's where he actually became literally the king of the parties. So people got crazy. People got excited. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. So now a big crowd of people are following him, and they're excited, waiting for the next miracle. And it is in this very moment that the royal official finds Jesus and walks up to him and then begs him. The verse goes, he asks Jesus to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus responds by then turning to the crowd and says, unless you see signs and wonders, you do not believe. What is he seeing here? What is he revealing to us? He's assessing our hearts, their hearts which isn't too different from our hearts right now. When we approach Jesus, either in dire desperation or in sheer interest, just amazing, just being amazed at what he's done or how good he is, how loving he is, all that. How, when we approach Jesus, he says, what's in your heart? What's the attitude? Of course, the royal official versus the crowd, it's very different, right? The royal official is very desperate. His son's life is at stake, literally, as opposed to the crowd. They're interested. They're intrigued. They're amazed. And they're curious to what the next thing is. In that, there's no similarity, seemingly. But here's the similarity. Both are there for Jesus' miracles, that's what they're there for. The crowd wants to see the next amazing move that will impress them. And the father, the official here, is actually for the healing miracle for his son. So to this, Jesus is first giving an assessment of the heart. And he says, let's first talk about our heart's condition. Where are we? He's saying that this isn't a genuine faith. Yes, you are here. You even say that you're amazing. Yes, you be I believe in you. You even say you're our savior. You should be our king. And later, we'll, we're actually going to see how the crowd takes the next step of trying to force him to become the king when they go even more crazy when they find, find out that he could make infinite amount of food. So they're there for that amazement or his healing. They're there with an agenda. Jesus is saying, you're not here to see me as who I am. Rather, you're here for the 
signs and wonders, what I can do. Now, one thing to remind us here is that signs and wonders here, what he's talking about, they aren't inherently bad in and of themselves. They aren't bad things. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying those are bad things. Don't look at him. He's saying, actually, to, very contrarily, Jesus' miracles are one of the primary means God uses to bring people to faith in him. That's one of the things that John actually does in our gospel here, where the miracles and the signs and wonders, they often lead people to follow Jesus and place their faith in him as the Messiah. This throughout the gospel of John and throughout other gospels. What Jesus is, is saying here is, if the signs and wonders become the condition to your faith, then that condition is what you're after, not the means to it. That accurately indicates what we're worshiping, who we're worshiping, what your faith stands on. So it is bad when our focus becomes signs and wonders. It is bad when our faith in Jesus becomes conditional upon something. And Jesus wants a genuine faith. That's what he's talking about today. So as Jesus starts with such assessment of the start, it rightly brings us to start applying that to ourselves, to have that assessment to ourselves. What's in our hearts? Now that we're here and we're spoken by this word of God, word of Jesus himself, what is it standing on? The assessment of trying to see what place the signs and wonders actually hold in our hearts, it could go two directions, either directions. One could be seeing the absence of it and seeing the aftermath of it. Both ways, we could actually assess our emotion to it. Are we distressed or angry? Are we hopeless? Are we mad? Are we sad? We're not saying, I'm not saying anger is bad. I'm not saying all sadness leads to finding out that this is because we're idolizing something or we're looking for signs and wonders. But what we're seeing is we can ask such questions. We could say, where am I putting my faith on? Is it because of the absence of such things in my life that I am distressed? In other words, I, we could do a thought experiment. When we start imagining, if we had those things that we don't have right now, will that actually bring us joy? Will that actually alleviate such pain that I have right now in the heart or in the body? Will that actually make me think that, oh, now I'm good then? You see how that actually works the opposite too, where if you don't see too much distress or sadness or discomfort in life, that doesn't automatically qualify us as not having those things. It's actually, uh, we have to do one more step of, do we have them in our possession actually? What we are given with, are they actually working as signs and wonders that are making the faith conditional to Jesus? Is it because we have a safe home that I feel safe? Is it because I haven't fought with my family members today that I am happy? Is it because I got into that place, I got that position or that college or fill in the blank that I am actually joyful? 
can we actually find out that those are actually working as the source of joy, the condition of our faith in Jesus, even when we find ourselves saying, Jesus, you are my Lord. I believe in you. I have faith in you. So is there anything in our hearts that work as the condition to our faith in Jesus? That wasn't too difficult for me to go through in terms of locating the things. It was hard to see them face to face. To me, I think it was comfort. I didn't know. But I realized that the absence of it or the existence of it, I was swayed by it. My faith was swayed. My confession to Jesus, my love for him, they were swayed back and forth. So when he said, unless you see signs and wonders, you do not believe, that did speak to me. So my question to you is, what does that say to you? What does that reveal for you? To the royal official, how does he respond? Jesus says this to the crowd and the royal official, and this is what he says. What? Okay. I don't know what you're saying, but sir, let's talk about the important thing. Sir, you need to come right now. My son's dying. Whatever you said, sir, come down before my child dies. That's what he says. So on one hand, we're seeing a pretty good persistence in desperation. He's saying, you need to come, Lord. I need you. I need you now. He's saying this is the true problem. You know that, right? This is the problem. My son is dying. Whatever you said, my son is dying. His physical health is at risk. I need, we need your bodily presence here to work your miracles. In other words, he's responding to Jesus' assessment of the heart with, Jesus, I still need this. I still need your healing. You still need to do this for me, for my son. And to the royal official, the problem is the brokenness of the world. That's what he's recognizing. That's what he's going through, experiencing. The mortality of human beings and the misery the regularity, but still the misery, deep misery that comes with it. And that's a problem for him. And he needs a cure for that, and he's looking for that. And he is looking the right way, but the world that has been broken by sin, that's his problem. And now every man destined to face the inevitable death, that's a matter of time. To that, Jesus actually says there actually needs more than that of healing. There actually needs to be two kinds of healing today. The boy needs healing, yes, and also you need healing. What is he talking about here? He addresses both the physical brokenness of the world, but the spiritual brokenness of the world that we're living in with our hearts, with our souls. That's the second point. Jesus heals our hearts. To this desperate man's request, Jesus replies with this. He says, go your son will live. That's actually interesting too. We thought he was rebuking him. And then next he says, please come. And what Jesus says here is almost no. He says, go. I'm not coming. Go here. Um, other translations kind of soften the tone, but the original language is an imperative. It's a commandment. He says, you need to go. Go. But it's followed with a premise, a promise. Your son will live. What is this 
What is happening here? What is this doing? What is his word doing here? When the man asked for him to be present, the perform of healing, Jesus gives something else. He gives his word. Instead of his presence to do miracles, he, he gives him his word. Jesus' word. He says, go and your son will live. Why is he commanding him to leave and go on his way while with that promise that he has given? At our first glance, that may seem odd, but if we see the man's response to this, this starts to make sense more. It actually reveals something more here. What actually happened is this. And then the man believed what Jesus said and then went on his way. Here, technically, the word literally says he believed the word that was spoken to him. The man believed the word that was spoken to him, and he believed. This is the same word, logos, later in the, the before in John 1, the word. And then when he says believe, same belief that he actually later shows when he sees the miracle, when he sees that, the boy is healed and the whole household does believe. Same word, same belief, same valid, genuine faith in Christ. So what happened here? A wrong application for this would be, hey, look at that. Hey, look at the royal official. He wasn't given with what he requested. He wasn't given with that proof that he was demanding, the miracle, the sign that he was demanding, but he believed. So let's do the same thing. Let's believe in Jesus before the proof, before such evidences, before signs. Um, this would be what we would think, what we, what we would call as blind leap of faith. Is this what the text is demanding us to do? Take a blind leap of faith, and then it'll follow? Um, I think that's not the case here. I think the Bible is teaching us something else, demanding us something much and radically different than what is called a blind faith. So when we say blind leap of faith, what does that actually entail? So why would we use the label blind? Blind means we're not seeing. So blind leap of faith actually entails this premise that there's nothing that we can see, and yet we should act before we see something. That's what it's entailed in us saying blind leap of faith. And the reason why this text isn't saying it is because the proof is there. Surely, the proof that the man wanted isn't there because he's there not where the miracle happened, the healing happened. But the proof is there. What is the proof? God's word is the proof that Jesus himself provides. God's word. His own word. God lays out his truth. He presents the evidences to us. It is the biblical account of the person and works of Jesus Christ. And that is what we believe in. And when we don't see that as proof, we can't say blindly but faith. But what we're saying is actually, I don't take that as evidence. That doesn't work for me as evidence. It's actually not about the absence of evidence. It's actually my issue, my heart's issue. I don't think that's true. 
I don't think that suffices. So a commentator says, authentic faith isn't a blind leap in the dark or a ride on a crest of an emotional wave. Authentic faith is an informed belief about Jesus Christ. John stresses this point throughout the gospel. His purpose is to inform everyone who picks up this gospel and reads that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then armed with this information, the reader can then choose to trust Jesus and receive eternal life. But we can't trust Jesus unless we understand the truth about him. We need a basis for our belief. And then throughout until this point, Throughout chapter 1 to 4, we've been exposed to who Jesus is and what he's done. Verse 1, 1, Jesus was announced as the word, the one who could perfectly reveal God to man. Verse 29 and 36, Jesus is declared to be the Lamb of God, the one who would offer his life as a sacrifice for the sin of each man and woman. Verse 34 of chapter 1, Jesus is called as the Son of God, the one unique Son who was sent by the Father as a love gift for his people. See, it goes on. Chapter 138 and chapter 32, Jesus is identified as a rabbi, the one who could perfectly teach us what God is like and how to be reconciled in him. And then later, Jesus is described as the Messiah, the one who would completely fulfill the promises of God given in the Old Testament. goes on. The list continues to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Savior. What this is doing is Jesus' word is sufficient evidence for our faith in order for us to believe. This is why he says in John 5, 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Let me read that again. He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, God has eternal life. So what we're here seeing in this passage today is the case of the power of God's word. This is teaching us that God and his word is actually inseparable. Who he is and the word, what he's saying. It's the very beginning of John, right? He was with God. He was God. That was the word was God in the beginning, ever since the beginning, ever since the creation. How was the world created? Through the word of God. God spoke, and the world was created. The word created God. God created, I'm sorry, the word created the world. God created the world. They are equated here. And Genesis 1, we're seeing that. John 1, we're seeing that. That's why Apostle Paul later tells us in Romans 10, 17, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So this dilemma that people are going through, I, I don't know if I'm blessed or not to uh, experience this at home. I have a six-year-old son who goes through a cycle of favorite lines that he would like to uh, flaunt around whenever he needs to uh, use the, the logic behind it. One day it was, um, sometimes it's cute, sometimes it's not. Uh, I'm glad that he's not listening right now, but um, I know that by the grace of God, uh, this will be edifying for us. But um, uh, one of it was, uh, I wish you were me so that you could know what I'm feeling. And it's, many times it has such deep 
psychology and philosophy behind it. The recent one he says <laughs> was, um, how do you know? He, he uses, it's not that in and of itself that's weird, but it's the context of, or the response to that, or how he uses that. He almost uses that in any kind of argument. Uh, one argument was, uh, he doesn't, somehow he doesn't like ketchup. Um, so we were eating, and then we were eating uh, a fried egg, I think. And uh, I was using a lot. I'm a ketchup lover, so I'm using a lot. And then he's not using any. So to my suggestion, I said, hey, Sean, you want to try out ketchup? It makes it really good. And then I know, and he knows that I know that he doesn't like ketchup. So it was more of a you know, friendly suggestion, kind of a nudge. Hey, try it out. And he says, no, I know what it tastes like. I tried it before. So I said, uh, I know you tried ketchup, but you didn't try it with this food. And when you try something new, the same thing can, can actually change this too. And then to that he says, how do you know? Uh, so that actually, within, that confuses me of, oh, so how do I, how do I know? It, it poses a very deep epistemological question of, how do I know anything? <laughs> but I didn't reveal that to him. I said, because, and then I went on with my reasoning, and then he, that's the elaborated version of why for him now. He's saying, how do you know that then? How, do, how can you prove that? As if he's actually questioning the validity of the objectivity of the evidences that I'm actually giving him with. But what we do know, what he knows too, is, is actually not because he's wondering the validity of the source of the material. He's actually just saying, why do I want to trust you? Or more so, why are you right and I'm wrong? He says that in the form of, hey, give me some validation to what you're bringing. But what he's saying is, no, I, I don't want it. You're saying something. I'm saying something different. I don't want it. And that logic, that doesn't work as an evidence to me. So how would you know anything God is much better than my responses. Mine is often because I say so or because I lived uh, 25 years more than you or I'm infinitely more experienced than you, all those uh, bad ways to say it. God actually does much better because uh, he is sinless and he is perfect and he could actually qualify the statements that I try to use, which is because he actually knows because he actually has access to truth, because he is almighty, because he successfully loves us, because he knows what's better for us, good for us, because he knows how the world was made, because he knows, fill in the blank, that we could do with anything that we just don't know. He knows, and he's capable. And that father is telling us, because I said so, that holds a validity as an evidence to that. God's word is a valid, sufficient evidence of reality. See, so what I'm getting here is faith issue here when we ask about evidences. I don't think it's a problem of logic or lack of evidence, lack of objectivity, especially when, even when we say so. It's not a logical issue. I think it's an ethical issue. I think the Bible mentions that. What we're saying here is we're rebelling against God, the source of truth. And we're saying, how do I trust you when I 
am actually geared for that. I'm made for that, made to love him, to worship him, but I rebel. From the bottom of my heart, I say, you are not my God. That is actually coming from death. It's not dying. It's not a, just a disease. It's actually coming from, it's a, it's a revealed sign of our dead heart. It's a sign of death, of our unbelief. And on the contrary, a genuine show of faith is not something that we can generate on our own when we're dead. That's what we're seeing here. Faith, a genuine faith is given by God himself. That's what we're seeing in royal official here. When he hears the word of God, the life giver, the eternal source of water, the truth, the way, and the life, when he hears such word, the message of the gospel, by Jesus himself, that creates in him a new heart. Jesus' word resuscitates the dead heart of the royal official here, and now he's alive. And we can see that when he believes in his word and he could go on his way. God's word creates a new heart. He heals our dead heart. But this spiritual healing of the man's heart isn't the end of the healing here. And that is a third point. Jesus brings the ultimate healing that involves physical healing. If the second point was dealt of spiritual healing, we now see the physical problem here of the boy. As the man believed Jesus' word, he goes on his way. He makes the trip back home without seeing the proof of the healing, right? He's moving now with just that faith to see what he cannot see. Look at verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So verse 40, uh, 52. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. Because he was suspicious now. Not suspicious of God, but did it really work that way? When did it work actually? So he's asking when did it happen? And then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. Remember how in verse 50, we saw Jesus giving a promise to this man and healing the son. But what we get to see here is that it wasn't just a promise that wasn't fulfilled. It was actually a healing at that exact time of Jesus' word of promise. He's done it. He's done the healing right there. And then he heals the boy and then assures the man that he did so by saying, your boy will live. That's very similar to how we experience his healing in our world. Jesus does heal the world. Jesus did heal the world. He brought salvation. He completed it. It isn't limited to our spiritual realm, our psychological realm. It, his victory is very much physical, very much real. Points like the second point of my sermon can often tempt us to kind of diminish God's healing, his work to a mere uh, just emotional or psychological scope of things where we kind of try to make for itself, which can't be further from the truth because Jesus is the author of the ultimate healing. Before jumping right into the application of this boy's healing to our situation and quickly just making it into a prosperity gospel where we could believe that the harder you believe, the more healing you'll see. 
let's do better in what this healing of the boy actually points to. We're going to be tempted, I think, because that's what happened to me, to read this and not feel like I need to believe better before seeing things. I need to put more faith so that I could await the signs and wonders, the healing of the boy, the healing of me, the healing of my fill-in-the-blank. But there's a difference between this prosperity gospel and a biblical gospel because the focus is different. It's not whether there is a miracle or not. It's the focus of what we're looking at kind of brings us back to the first point because the prosperity gospel, the focus is the healing, the wonders, the sign. And the faith is the means to acquire such things. Biblical faith, on the other hand, is a genuine seeing of what cannot be seen by, we're seeing it by spirit now, which is promised by the eternal healing of Jesus Christ, which works in God's timing, not ours. The healing of the boy points to the ultimate healing of the ultimate sickness, which is death and sin. He's actually representing to the world that he possesses such power to heal the world. And he further shows such sign and wonder later on. He promises that because the scribes asked, Pharisees asked, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. That's Matthew 12. And he answers them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. True healing is done when Jesus did that sign when he died on the cross and rose again after the third day we've been talking about the signs and wonders there aren't bad in fact it's a good thing moreover he uses that in john 2 chapter 2 john also talk, talks about this thing too uh, he was cleansing the temple he was doing provocative things and people say what signs do you show us to prove this and he says, destroy this temple. I will, in three days, I will raise it up. Continuously, we see the best sign and wonder. We see the best healing, which is done on the cross. And to see royal official, for him to witness such amazing sign and wonder, after his faith, after his regeneration of his heart, and he saw the miracle, he continuously it got exposed to Jesus' goodness and his miracle. What did that do? That actually converts him even more. Not only him, it converts the whole family. It spreads. Witnessing of such great healing produces a conversion. And much more will be accomplished. Much more is accomplished when we witness the sign of Jonah. When we see Jesus die for our sins and rise again, it ascends into heaven, and seated on the right hand of the Father, and as the Holy Spirit works a saving faith in each one of us who reads this very word of the gospel, the whole world believes, and all their households. Salvation comes from Jesus Christ, and the word proves it. 
His word proves it. And his word creates in us the faith. So how do we apply this in our lives? How do we apply this today? We could use all those points and practically apply to our lives. We could start believing in the word of Jesus, what he said. We could start believing in John 20, 31, the purpose of it. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that if you're hearing this for the first time, maybe there is a moment where you will believe because God changes your heart. He convicts your sins. He convicts the hopelessness of where we're headed, and he also convicts the sufficiency of what Christ is offering to us. And he's showing the goodness of such love, the perfection of the love, where we get to respond and say, I believe. You could believe that word. You could count on that. Not on my word, but God's word. If you have already made that commitment, if you have already believed in him, we could continue that. Because that faith grows. Just as the royal official's faith grew, the initial moment of believing and going on his way, and then to see further miracles, further work of the gospel, just being presented to him and that convicting him even more. That could apply to us. Witness God's goodness and believe in him, Jesus Christ. But for us to believe in the word of Jesus, what do we need to do? We need to hear the word of Jesus. The word of God needs to be present in our lives. So I suggest, I encourage, I strongly challenge us to continue to hear God's word. And I'm not limiting to this activity of what we call usually devos or our meditations. Those things do work as that, but there are more. Continue to hear God's word through the preaching of the word. Continue to hear it as you pray through the Holy Spirit. As you hear the very word of God spoken to you, as you read the scripture, as you worship together, as you actually have that communion with the holy saints, when you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, when you continue to discern that, we need to continue to hear the word of God. And then we could continue to just go back to the first point of identifying if there are any signs and wonders that we're still holding on to. Because we, I talked about how when we say what evidence or what works as a sufficient evidence, many times it does reveal that we're clouded by something else that says, that doesn't work for me. Jesus, you need to come now. Just as the visual said, you need to come to our home right now. That's how you need to save us. Jesus, you need to do those miracles. That's how you save our kingdom, just as the Jews said. Jesus, you need to do this and that in order for me to rightly believe you, to continue to believe you. We need to recognize those things. Hopefully to find that there are other things that we're holding as the ground of our faith as opposed to his word itself. When we actually end up saying God's word isn't enough. We want to recognize that there are other things that we are easily replacing and idolize to worship it. That does, once again, that doesn't mean those goodness is nullified still good but the fact that we're 
idolizing it, the fact that we're worshiping it is the bad thing. That's where we go back to the first points of the applications. We go back to repentance and putting our faith to Christ himself and believe in him and say, you, you are the giver of life, Lord. These things, good things, can happen, should happen if you will. If you let your kingdom come, if it's aligned with your kingdom, let your will be done. But if it doesn't, if those signs and wonders that I desperately need, that I desperately ask for actively in our prayer, in my life, but if it doesn't happen, if it's not aligned with your will, let it be so. Because you have already done the healing on the cross. You've already saved me. You've already healed me eternally. So despite the fact that I'm still suffering here, Despite the fact that it's still painful to be hurt, to witness such horrible things in life, not just within, but outside. Other people doing horrible things, ourselves doing horrible things. When those things continue, we say ultimate healing has been given. Jesus Christ has died on the cross and he lived. So we could believe in him, continue to go on our way, just like he did, just like this guy did. And we could believe in Christ. Move on with life in faith. So to believe in Jesus Christ actually is to believe his word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, for you speaking to us. God, there was no necessary reason for us to deserve such things. In fact, it was the opposite, where we didn't deserve such grace and love. But we thank you for you creating in us a new heart to give us faith, to believe in you, to hear you, to hear your word, and to believe you. God, let us see the sufficiency of your self-evident revelation from you. God, would you heal our hearts? Would you heal our land? Would you heal our culture? Heal the world, Lord. And at the same time, we do profess, we believe that you have done so, that you have triumphed, that you have given the way of life, the eternal water. So God, we ask that you would let us live a life that believes such truth. Let us live with confidence and live with faithfulness and continue to hold on to you in peace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.